Welcome to Collected Talks of David Solomon, podcasts on Jewish history, the Bible, Jewish mysticism, philosophy, and thought. Find out more about David's upcoming classes, publications, and other recorded lectures by visiting davidsolomon.online. And now, here's the lecture. is the third part of a series recorded in Jerusalem in 2009. In this lecture, David uses a number of terms and concepts that may be difficult for listeners unfamiliar with this sort of material. For a list of terms with definitions, go to davidsolomon.online slash podcasts and click on the link for episode 61. Those of you who have braved this. I'm always intensely surprised, particularly in this series of talks, that anybody is coming back. So that <laughs> the fact that you are here is a tremendous delight to me. It, I want to start just a couple of minutes of covering some of the feedback that I've had from this series of talks. As you know, those of you who haven't been around for the last a couple of sessions... I am very, very reluctant to teach this material, and that reluctance is, has not changed. It is being borne out constantly by the fact that people are coming to me and saying, it all sounds very interesting, but we don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> I'm one of those people. And nevertheless, to bring this material down within Asarat Fahim, within grasp of, of our intellect in a way that makes sense for us has in fact been the basic project of Kabbalistic transmission of the last few hundred years, particularly since the RE. And this course is dealing with post-Lurianic Kabbalah, that is the way that the tremendous revelation of the RE has been brought down, transmitted, interpreted and applied. We could spend years meeting every night discussing all of the various trends and ideas that have emerged from that project. So in this series of three talks, I'm really just talking about some of the major, major schools that form the background to the Kabbalistic world of today. On which subject? I spoke towards the end of last week about the contemporary phenomenon produced and the, the visit of Esther to the land of Israel and the whole Kabbalah Center phenomenon and I was chided towards the end that perhaps I hadn't indicated my particular feelings on that and I want to be very, very clear that I'm not a fan of that project. I have much to say on that subject privately for those who wish to find me right after I've woken up when I'm having my first coffee would be the best time to get me to speak about those issues. The other thing was that, and this is a point and I really should just spend two seconds on this because it was a point made to me on a couple of occasions that really I should indicate that not all of the Kabbalistic material that we are covering is accepted by everybody within the Jewish intellectual world. I just want to point that out. There is an entire strand of thinking Basically, ever since the Zohar, so we're going back, you know, 800 years since the revelation of the Zohar, that is really rejecting this entire Chochmah, this entire Torah Hasod that we have 
received through various tremendous revelations. They are rejecting the doctrine of Sfirot. They're rejecting the doctrine of Olamot. They're rejecting everything the Zohar is trying to tell us about the divine reality that is guiding things. Those objections continue till today. Although I don't want to spend too much time talking about views that believe that the content that I'm teaching is not valid. If I teach something, it's because I believe it's important, because I believe it is contributive. The majority of the Jewish world, and when I say the Jewish world, I mean the spiritually seeking, intellectual Jewish world that is trying to find cosmological, theological, and metaphysical and spiritual answers to big questions, do accept the major revelations of Kabbalistic thought. If you ask most of the Gedolim of any generation of the past few hundred years, they will tell you that the Zohar is a genuine revelation of Torah. They will tell you that the Ari is a genuine revelation of Torah. All the great rabbis, whether they are explicit about it or not, have dealt with this material. We are talking, however, there is a minority some schools of more rationally inclined thinking as, as well as others who have ultimately not gone down this path. But if that's you, then what are you doing here? And it could be you. It could be you. And you could be sitting here going, well, I'm here because I want to find out what it is I don't believe in. And that's perfectly acceptable. I'm going to touch on that maybe later in the talk. That's perfectly acceptable. But I believe, and a great many other people who are in fact far greater than me, have believed that there is in this content and material something of tremendous value to tell Am Yisrael and to tell the Jewish people, especially today as it unfolds. Now, in the first talk, I looked at two of the major intellectual branches that come out of Lurianic Kabbalah, which is Rabbi Chaim Vital, who was the primary student of the Yari, and Rabbi Yisrael Sarug, whose presence in front of the Ari has been questioned by some, but there's no doubt that he was a formative influence in the Hafatzah, in the spread of Lurianic Kabbalah throughout Europe and elsewhere. By the time we go through the 17th century, these two strands are more or less distinct, but as we get to the 18th century, the various ideas are starting to be synthesized, and we looked at that last week when we looked at the Ramchal, who is a tremendously influential thinker in Kabbalistic history. Many of the schools of Kabbalistic thought today derive in some form from the Ramchal's project. And we looked at the Gra. We looked at the Gaon of Vilna and the entire school of Kabbalistic thought that he engendered. I'm staying in the same century, the same time frame, more or less. I'm very fond of saying, and I'll say it again, that if you want to understand the Jewish world of today and its various streams and backgrounds in any field, you have to go to the 18th century. That is really the birth of the various factions and schools of thought that make our, what we call, the Jewish world of today. Obviously, you go back further if you want to know what's really going on. But the 18th century seems to see the rise of a great variety of different perspectives. I'm staying in the 18th century, and I am diving into the nothing short of revolution that was effected by the Baal Shem Tov and the Hasidic movement Bichlal and certain thinkers Beprat. Tonight I am going to be talking about the Baal Shem Tov a bit. We'll talk about the Magid, and I want to look at the thinking of two figures who really, there are many, many outstanding minds and spiritual 
beacons that shine out of that whole Hasi early Hasidic project, but I'm going to look at Rav Shneur Zalman of Liadi, the Balatanya, and I'm going to look at Rabbi Nachman of Bratzlav. I'm going to be looking at those thinkers not necessarily as Hasidic thinkers, but I'm going to be focusing tonight on those people as Kabbalists. I want to look, because this is a course on major trends within post-Lurianic Kabbalah, to borrow a term from Shalom, I'm going to be focusing on their Kabbalistic ideas so that we can understand how Kabbalah is brought down and interpreted. And in that project, I'm hoping that we will all of us together succeed in bringing some form of comprehension and understanding into the material we have been looking at so we can get a glimpse of how it can be approached. I have spoken in a totally separate context in this building on the Hasidic movement. So I'm not going to spend too much time on the historical context, although that is always, always important. When we looked last week, for example, at the transition that happens between the early 17th and the mid-18th century, you cannot ignore what is going on in the intellectual world, Bichlal. It just simply cannot be ignored. As much as someone might want to sit in a room and shut their eyes and their ears and go, there's no such thing as the Enlightenment, it does in fact have a massive impact on us and on Jewish thinking. But I'm not going to go into too much detail on the history because the ideas themselves are going to require a little bit of time to unpackage. As you are aware, the Baal Shem Tov is flourishing. His career is really taking off towards the end of the first half of the 18th century, meaning that the Baal Shem Tov, in a sense, became revealed. He started going around saying, Hi, I'm the Baal Shem Tov, in around 1736, and he died in 1760. So we've got about a 25-year period where his teachings are being recorded and listened to, and we can get a glimpse of what this transformation and revolution was all about. There is very little doubt that the Baal Shem Tov was deeply moved, motivated, inspired, and taught and enlightened from Lurianic Kabbalah. It, he may not have been expressing it in those terms, because ultimately the Baal Shem Tov was talking to a very, very wide group of people. Predominantly, guys wandering around forests, chopping down trees and schlepping milk carts, who really didn't have time to sit down and go right through Chumash and Tanakh and Midrash and Talmud and sit down then and learn Etz Chaim. But nevertheless, his transformation is utterly based on concepts that we have already looked at, that are brought down by the Ari and subsequently worked upon by his students. There are a number of sources. I remember in this course, I actually, as much as possible, I want to tell you exactly where I'm looking and what I'm reading. There are a number of sources for the Baal Shem Tov. I think that Sefer Baal Shem, which is, comes out these days in about two volumes, is a very, very good and regarded by most scholars as reasonably authentic Likut of some of the Baal Shem Tov's direct sayings. The Baal Shem Tov, well, <laughs> it's difficult really not to place some historical context on this, but do you, do you remember... 
I spoke about it when I spoke about Rabbi Yisrael Sarug, and I spoke about the very influential book that came out of the Sarugian school, Emek HaMelech, and I spoke about this focus on the world being created by the Aliyat HaMachshava, as they call it, the rise in within God of the thought of what? Very good, Stuart. I told you your thing. Tzadikim. Because God contemplates the joy that he would get. Remember that Rabbi Yisrael Sarug's Limudei Atzilut starts with the concept of a Sha'ashua, which is like this just absolute enjoyment. Because he's thinking of the Tzadikim, implying therefore that the Tzadikim are those who can behave in a way that would justify the creation. Hamatzdik et ha'olam. Everybody needs to behave and live in a way at every moment that would justify the creation of the world for them and for this moment. Everybody follow? Baal Shem Tov says, you know, it's not just the tzaddikim. In fact, it's much more than that. The real thought that is coming up in God's mind, this is a, when you first read it, it's like a very radical thought, but the real thought that's coming up in God's mind is the thought of Rashaim, of the wicked. It is the wicked who caused the creation of the world because it is the wicked who produce dinim, who produce judgments, who produce the infrastructure by which vessels can be built. It is the potential of every wicked person. And when we say wicked person, we don't just mean, you know, bank robbers and rapists. We also mean me, definitely. But all of us are, until we're perfected, we're sometimes not perfect. <laughs> Can't put that any other way. But the Rashaim the potential of every human being to become perfected, to do Teshuvah. And I know that I bang on about this when we discuss Nuviim, when we discuss Tanakh, and I'm going on about this concept of Teshuvah, and people take it for granted. And it's good I mentioned this since we're coming now to the end of Elul and the beginning of near Rosh Hashanah. It's very important to realize that this concept of Teshuvah is such a radical concept. It's a radical concept brought to the world by the great prophets of Israel, by the Nevi'im of Am Yisrael, that if a person does Teshuvah and they effect a proper inner transformation in themselves, they change themselves, they change the world and every single thing that they were doing, they can be the biggest and drek in the world, but if they actually do Teshuvah, every part of their wickedness is transformed into Zchuyot. This is a huge concept and it's not removed from when we look at Someone like the Baal Shem Tov, who's really still dealing in that conceptual framework. The potential of every wicked person to do Teshuvah is really what comes up into God. But while they're still wicked, they are producing dinim. In Kabbalistic literature, we have a concept called Hamtakat HaDinim, the sweetening of the dinim. It is those acts of the wicked. Now, what is this familiar? why is this familiar to us? First of all, once we get over this idea, the startling idea that it's the wicked who create the world, well, not create the world, but cause the world really to come into existence, what does it remind us of? It's not so dissimilar from an idea that is heavily propounded by the Ramchal. 
by Rav Moshe Chaim Lutzata, who I discussed last week. Because at the end of the day, the Ramchal is telling us that we do live in a world that is as good as it can be. The evil that exists, exists in order to allow the world to exist. All evil exists in order so that the whole of the rest of the world can have existence because the world cannot be created perfectly. It's created in stages. Our job is, on the one hand, to ignore the evil and on an even higher level to fight it. But the evil that does exist exists necessarily, not for God, but for the world. You're listening to Collected Talks of David Solomon. Your support can really make a difference. If you enjoy these lectures, please consider rating or reviewing this podcast, or simply telling others who may be interested. Now, let's get back to the lecture. Now, the Baal Shem Tov, the Baal Shem Tov says many, many things, but I'm bringing that one point, that one point, because it exemplifies a point that's going to be burst open Kabbalistically by the people that come after the Baal Shem Tov, in a, in, a, in a uniquely Kabbalistic way, drawing on some of the Kabbalistic concepts we've studied. There is no way in this small series of talks that I can go into the great detail of all Kabbalistic ideas and literature and concepts. And as you know, those who've been here, I've been focusing primarily on one or two very, very preliminary concepts in Kabbalistic literature. As I've often said, I've spoken mostly about Tzimtzum and Kav and Chalal, and those concepts occupy maybe the first two pages of Etz Chaim. And Etz Chaim is like this. So you can imagine that the literature is vast. So when I go in now into Hasidic concepts, I'm focusing mostly on Halal and Tzimtzum and Kav. Everybody follow that? Don't worry if you're sitting there going, I have no idea what he means by Tzimtzum and Kav and Halal. Because I will go over those concepts in just a few moments. You can see what the Baal Shem Tov is doing. The Baal Shem Tov is bringing God down to take cognizance and to be relevant to the average individual zhlob. The person who's just wandering around the world. God is trying to make his life and the meaning of his life relevant to the universe and relevant to the creator of the universe. The Baal Shem Tov effects a revolution where he says, you do not have to be this big London, you do not have to be a big intellectual, you don't have to be a sage, you don't even have to be a tzaddik. You should strive to be a tzaddik, but at the end of the day, you can be a tzaddik even if you're an Amaretz. The key is that God cares about every single Jew and every single Jew has a purpose and meaning in the world and a potential to fulfill. There is a very, very big concept in Lurianic Kabbalah that we did, I have not discussed really in this series of talks yet, but that's very big for the Baal Shem Tov, and that is when, as you know, I discussed the concept of Shvirata Kelim. Remember, here's my two-second summary of Etz Chaim. We have Ein Sof, the infinite. Remember that we've now, Kabbalah introduces us into a world where God is not just one, but infinite. Ein Sof. Ein Sof does what we might call a hit up kut, in other words, a self-limitation where and Sof withdraws away into itself to leave what we call the, I mean, this is Ein Sof, to leave what we call the Halal, which is the empty space, void of God's 
infinite and limitless qualities and then God re-enters the halal through a line which goes down to here which we call the kalf. So just this basic dynamic is what I have been discussing. Remember also that as the light comes down into the halal through the kalf, it emanates in two basic modes. One is what we call igulim, which are circular or depicted circular. And the other is yosher, which are lines and form basically other sfirot. Each of these are sfirot, by the way, whether they are circular or straight, and form the basic structure of what we call Dmut Adam, human configuration. I once again want to just very briefly highlight that it is the 18th century that really gives rise, we discussed this last week, to a massive discussion that at times became very heated and sometimes even acrimonious between Kabbalists and the proponents of Lurianic Kabbalah and its interpreters about whether all this material is a mashal meaning it's an allegory for something else, it's just a mode of depiction, it's a way of conceiving things, but it's really mashalik, it's really allegoric, and the meaning of the allegory is somewhere else in life. Or those who say, no, it's actually, this is what happened. It is kipshuto, it is literal. That debate is going on in the 18th century, and I can tell you that to some extent, if you poke around on strange places on the internet, it's even going till today. All of the Kabbalistic thinkers, or certainly most of the Kabbalistic thinkers that we know of and that we read up until the Baal Shem Tov, are focused on this idea. Actually, I was in the middle of another point. I haven't lost it. I was in the middle of another point, which is something that I haven't really talked about too much yet. And I was just going to say, because it's very important to understand the Baal Shem Tov, is that the Baal Shem Tov also focuses, even though we haven't really discussed it. You remember that the light comes in and then the kalim, the vessels that are created in the halal, cannot contain the light and they gesmash. And they gesmash down here and then they are rebuilt as the worlds of Abiyah, Atzilut, Biyah, Yitzirah and Asiyah, these four worlds. Particularly, I mean, Atzilut is a fully perfected reconstructed world, it is ideal, it is perfect, but Biyah is where we live, that's our conceptual physical, spiritual universe, everything is contained in Biyah, that's really what needs to ascend up and then so on. Now, when the Kelim fell, when the vessels fell, there adhered to the vessels sparks of divine light. Those sparks of divine light are hidden in our universe, they are they go down into what we call the klipa, which I haven't really spoken much about, which is the whole, ooh, the evil side. And they come down, and then our job as humanity is to raise those sparks which sustain things in the universe and raise them up so that they can be restored to the divine and can take part in the reconstruction of the ultimate vessel, which is the world that can contain the light of God. The Baal Shem Tov is very big on the idea of raising sparks, meaning you don't know where you're going to find the spark of the divine. It could be anywhere, and you have no idea necessarily which action or which person or anywhere. So everything in your life has the potential to be raised up and sanctified for, for divine use. The real transition for Hasidut, intellectually, in terms of Kabbalistic ideas, comes after the Baal Shem Tov. The Baal Shem Tov is not expressing his ideas in explicit Kabbalistic language. That is left for his successor. And his successor is 
the Maggid of Mesrich, Dovber Maggid of Mesrich. Now, I'm going to do something. I can see everybody's already going to sleep, and I am. I'm going to do something. I don't normally do this. I don't normally do this. Leave a lecture halfway through. No, I'm kidding. I don't normally do this, but I'm actually going to read something. Oh my gosh, he's going to read something. Some people are getting the idea I know how to talk, but they think I don't know how to read, and maybe that's true, but if I didn't read anything, I wouldn't have much to talk about. The reason I want to read this to you, it's just one paragraph, the reason I want to read it to you is because I think that the Magid says this better than anyone else, and certainly better than me. Uh, it's from Magid Varavli Yaakov, and in fact it is the opening paragraph. It is Aleph, and I'm just going to read it quickly. I will translate. I don't want anybody running out of the room in panic, because I'm speaking in Hebrew. But I just want to read you this paragraph because this really sets the tone of what the Maggid does. The Maggid, you see, the Maggid is the Maggid who, by the way, dies in 1772. Interestingly, that's the year that, a short, not, not too long after the Cherims that came out from the whole school of the Graal and the Hasidic movement, but it's also interestingly the same year that Rav Nachman Raslav is born. The Maggid, but we're not entirely sure when the Maggid was born. When the Maggid was born, we're not sure, but one assumes he would have been probably in his... I don't know if anyone has a Masorit for how old the Maggid was when he passed away. Do we know? Probably in his 60s or something like that. Passed away in 1770, just so you have an idea. But the Maggid is really the first Kabbalistic systematizer of what the Baal Shem Tov was trying to achieve. Remember, as I've said before... <laughs> You don't have to know Kabbalistic literature and ideas to understand Hasidut, but you definitely need to know Kabbalistic concepts and ideas to write in Hasidut, to originate Hasidut. All of the great Hasidic leaders were profound Kabbalists, intimately aware with all the source texts of Kabbalistic literature. I remember when I was in Hasidic Yeshivot, the study of source Kabbalistic text was not encouraged. But there's no question that all of Hasidut, and I'll get on to this later in a, in a short while, all of Hasidut is based on Kabbalistic concepts. I want to read from you from the Maggid because this paragraph in a sense speaks for itself based on some of the concepts that we've been talking about. Amar Abi Yitzchak. Who recognizes that? Who recognizes that? Yes. Yes. Excellent. First Rashi on Breshit. Very good. A lolly for this woman. Amar Abi Yitzchak. Lollies are sweet. Lo hayat sarich la'tchila Torah ela me'achodesh hazeh lachem. God, it's a famous Rashi, we all know it. God didn't need to start the Torah at Bereshit. He could have started it where? In Sever Shemot, achodesh hazeh lachem. This month, just before Pesach, take a lamb, shechted. That's the first mitzvah we're given as a nation. So, since the Torah is about mitzvot, What's all this other stuff going on before? Why did he reveal to them the whole story of creation? And now, now this is interesting, because those of you who are familiar with the Rashi will know that this is the very point at which the Maggid shoots off away from Rashi. Because Rashi then quotes a Pasuk. Anyone remember what that Pasuk is? Excellent. I, I'm such a learned audience. I'm very honored. The, the power of his works, he relates to his people. But in fact, the Maggid is something very different. Because Am Yisrael at Har Sinai said, We will do, meaning not just we will hear, but we will understand. The whole point 
of these Kabbalistic revelations are so that you will understand how the world comes into being. It's important to understand that to give you and the world meaning. And it brings from Zohar, Yisrael, the thought of Am Yisrael, the thought of the Jewish people, rose in thought before God. This this rising or progression of will, so that the Jewish people will be righteous in every generation, God, as it were, did a tzimtzum, did a contraction of his brilliance, which is the really infinite light that needs to be contracted in order for existence to take place, perceived existence to take place. Like a father who reduces or contracts his intellect and speaks sort of childish things for his small child. A very famous analogy of the Magid about how Tzimtzum works. It's a contraction of the infinite in order to come down. And the mashal that he gives is a big rav, or a, especially a father giving over a concept to a child. It's not only intellect, it's all sorts of childish behaviors that the father has to adopt or that are produced by this coming down to the level of the child. It is the father coming down to the level of the child, not just in words, but even in sort of behavioral modes, mucking around, laughing, sitting under the table, playing with marbles, whatever it is you do with the kids. She'ohev et ma'asen na'arut, because he comes to love these, these childish behaviors, ta'anug, so that the child himself will have delight in what the father is trying to communicate to him. And it's good, it's nice for him. That's a very bad translation, but I just... By God, the past and the future are one. There's no distinction in time. Time comes later in the emanatory process. And God takes pleasure and enjoyment from the acts of the righteous. Contracted himself. Tzimtzum is Chochmah. It's called Chochmah. Remember that the... I'll just remind us of the Sfirot. So the first is Keter. The Keter is way beyond any... Uh, Keter is the very will and idea behind any unfolding. And Chochmah is the first of the Sfirot. So Chochmah is the first clea. It's really the first vessel. All of creation happens through Chochmah, which means wisdom, but really means Chochmah. Hashem b'chochmah yasad Eretz. Through Chochmah, Hashem founded the earth. Eretz being Malchut. Tzimtzum is Chochmah. Ki ha-chochmah hu Because Chochmah is from nothing. Keter is called Ayin. It's called nothingness. Chochmah springs from nothingness. Al-derech, and this is a pasuk from Iyov. Vaha-chochmah me-ayin timtza. From where do you find Chochmah? It comes from Ayin. It comes from nothing. This contraction of the infinite was for the Jewish people. It was love that caused Tzimtzum. Not Dinim. Dinim, which is the concept of limitation. God has to limitate, limit the infinite in order to create the world. 
But in fact, says the Magid, and it's the big revolution of the Magid, it's Chesed, it's Ahava, the whole concept of the creation of the world. Vezeu ve'ele toldot Yitzchak Avraham holid et Yitzchak. Remember how the Zohar shows us that all of the Sfirot are emblematically represented by biblical figures. The idea of Avraham holid et Yitzchak. Yitzchak is the idea of Dinim. Yitzchak is the idea of Pachad. But it is Avraham holid et Yitzchak. Ultimately, Tzimtzum might look like Din, but it is in fact a tremendous act of Chesed, tremendous act of Ahava on the part of God for the world. Every single second of every single moment, a person should be aware that existence is phenomenal. The fact that anything exists, and the fact that I exist, that you exist, that people exist. Now, what is the monkey telling us? He's telling us basically that Simtsum is the process of the Chokhmah of Ensof, of God concentrating into the Chokhmah of Ensof. What do we notice? Is anyone noticing something very strange about this? I know that I just read something from the Maggid, it sounds very nice, but there's something very strange going on Kabbalistically. The Maggid's got a totally different concept of Tzimtzum from what we've seen before in Kabbalistic literature, from what Chaim Vital and everybody else tells us specifically. They tell us that Tzimtzum is a movement on the part of Ensof away from a central point into Ensof itself, but the Maggid is telling us that in fact Ensof is concentrating into a point. Can you see that paradoxical moment? That is the first, in a sense, at a very, very high level. And the Maggid is very high. If you read the Maggid, you either need to be high or just realize that he's high. Because it's very, very powerful stuff. But it's a transformation. It's a concentration into a point. It's also ma'asen na'arut. It is, in a sense, childish. It is a concentration and a lowering as God is into chokhmah. And then subsequently all the other kelim and all the other sfirot. And for the Magid, and he writes elsewhere, that the Sha'ashua, this delight, this Ta'anug that God has thinking about the universe, is itself the very reward that the righteous get when they rise up back through time and through spirituality to the essence of God. They get the Sha'ashua, they get the delight for God. The Sha'ashua, the Ta'anug, is both the creating force, it's the thing that precipitates and triggers creation, and it's the very reward for those who caused creation to happen, because in God there is no differentiation of time. When I was much younger, and I was studying in Yeshivat, so I had the privilege, uh, I, I spent a few years in Yeshivat, but I, three of those years were in the framework of Chabad. And it's very interesting, for those of you who've learned in Chabad Yeshivat, I don't know how it is now. We live in a slightly different world from when I was in Yeshiva in the 18th century. <laughs> we live in a slightly different world, only a couple of decades away from that. When I was in Chabad, there were... Remember I spoke last week about how one of the things that I was confused about when I was young and I started learning Kabbalistic material was I went to the commentary of the Balasulam, Rav Yehuda Ashlag, and then I came back to Hasidut and I couldn't work out why he was talking about totally different concepts than the concept. And that sets you on a path of, of, of trying to work out what's going on. Well, when you're in Chabad, I don't know now, but maybe Levingo or others could tell me, but there were two massive figures from the 18th century that are simply not mentioned. They're not discussed. They're not discussed. One is, one was, the Ramchal, 
I mean, I'm hearing from every other input in the universe how massive the Ramchal is. I have other teachers outside of a Chabad framework who are going, the Ramchal, the Ramchal. And the Chabad's going, Ramchal. And the other is Rav Nachman of Ratzlav. Even Chabad literature that talks about the widening sort of different variations of schools and Hasidic thought that doesn't really talk about Rav Nachman. But there is enough, and, and therefore I spoke about the Ramchal last week, I'm going to speak about Rabbi Nachman in a few minutes, but I need to spend some time on Rav Zalman of Liadi as the bridge between this. Many of you would be familiar with the Alter Rebbe's primary work, which is the Tanya. And the Tanya is a book that all of us with reasonably scratchy Hebrew can make our way through. It's not a difficult book linguistically. The concepts are not, at least on the surface, so mind-boggling that they can't be understood. He's much clearer than I am. But he takes a person through a journey of the mind using Kabbalistic concepts, but it's basically a book on how to be a better person in the world, how to be a better Jew, how to do Avodah, it's not explicitly dealing with massive Kabbalistic concepts. So anybody can learn Tanya, but if you learn Tanya, it's not going to turn you into a Kabbalist. It might mention concepts that might have you running off to various books, but unless you go back to the Kabbalistic sources themselves, you won't necessarily get a picture of what's going on Kabbalistically. That is not the case with all of of Shneer Zalman of Liadi's other writings. There is a huge gap, Kabbalistically, between the Tanya and his other writings, primarily all of his Ma'amarim, but particularly his massive Perush on the Torah, which is contained in Likutei Torah and Torah Or. What I'm going to talk about now, to try and sum up what Chabad does Kabbalistically, and what the Alter Rebbe does Kabbalistically, is taken mostly from Torah Or, and certainly the first few pages there, but also his phenomenal perush on Parshat Vayera, and from Perek Lamed Chet of Tanya, which I think lays out extremely well the whole approach about what I'm talking about and how that translates into Avodah. Make no mistake, at the end of the 18th century, or towards the end of the 18th century, the Gaon of Vilna on one hand, and Rishnir Zalman of Liadi, on the other, represented the two giant beacons of possible spiritual directions. I wish I had a little more time to go into the Alter Rebbe more on a biographical note. Of course, he was born in 1845 on... I said, what did I say? I said, 18, I mean, 1745. Did I say 1845? No, no, no. No, yeah, he's in the 18th Sorry. Thank you. If I ever do that, tell me. Because it's not me talking, it just comes from. <laughs> 1745 on Chayel. And he passes away in around 1813. Just to give people a picture of when he's sitting, he is really a student of the Magid. He is part of that next circle, the next generation of Hasidic thinkers. He has probably got more names by which he is known than just about any other figure in Jewish history. He is known as Shnizalman of Liadi. He is known as the Baal Hatanya. He is known, of course, within Chabad as the Alter Rebbe. He is got a oh, He's also known as the Rav. 
Because don't forget that as well as a massive Kabbalistic and Hasidic project, he also composed at the behest of the Magid and basically an entire Shulchan Aruch. So he's a massive, massive figure. And famously, of course, an Ilui, and as I've often said, and I'll say it again, if you throw a stone in the 18th century, it will land on an Ilui. And he was a huge Ilui. And by the time he's around 20 years old, he has a choice as to whether he's going to go to Vilna to sit and learn with Eliyahu, the Gaon of Vilna, the Gra, or whether he's going to go to Medziboz and learn, or Mizrich and learn with the Magid. And he says famously, I basically think I know how to learn, but no one's told me how to pray. So he goes and to the Magid. Shnezalman is concerned with a very, very big point. He's concerned with a number of points, but at the basis of much of his intellectual and spiritual inquiry is a dual concept that he seems to be struggling with right across his literature. And that is the concept of the fact that Or Ein Sof is, once again, once again, I'm going to talk about concepts and you will be sitting there saying, what is this all about and what has this got to do with anything, especially me, and why is this useful? I'm asking you to bear with me a few moments. I've got to lay out the concepts and then I'll show how he brings it down. The whole point of the evolution of post-Luranic Kabbalistic thought is this attempt to bring the ideas down to a point where we can actually understand them and their relevance for us. The Alter Rebbe is concerned with the concept of Sovev, Sovev, what is the meaning of Sovev? Surrounding, as in Sviva, surrounding, because God surrounds all the worlds, and Memale, God fills all the worlds. In fancy English, God is transcendent, and God is imminent. Now we have that basic dualism in God and Schnizalman is trying to penetrate beyond that. Our task is really to try and reconcile those two facets of God's revelation to the world as both Sovev and Memale. Here's what that might mean. In fact, here's what that does mean. Everybody is wandering around with a concept of God. A concept of God. When I say the word, everybody goes, I know what I, yeah, I think, I think, I think, I, there it is. That's it. Everybody's walking around with a concept of God. And all of us, presumably, walk around with a notion of what God expects from us in the world and our general behavior, whether that is ritually through mitzvot, whether it is through limud Torah, well, it's just being a spiritual Jew in the world and what that entails. That's a more imminent concept of God, but at the same time we need to reconcile that with what our general concept of God is, whether we study philosophy, whether we study Kabbalah, what's the relationship between these two? Is one of the projects of Shneer Zalman, but even just intellectually, the concept of Soviv and Mamale, he's struggling through much of his material, to reconcile this idea. Tsim which he takes from Magid, which we read that passage, 
is the Chochmah of Ein Sof. That's where Tzimtzum begins to happen, in the Chochmah. Therefore, Tzimtzum is Torah. And Torah is Chochmah Ila'a. Chochmah, the supernal Chochmah into which God is concentrated. Remember the Torah and the letters of the Torah create the world as they come into it. It is therefore the Chochmah of every level. Kabbalah, for example, is the Chochmah of Atzilut. At least in its external form. It is the wisdom of understanding the world of Atzilut. The interior of that, the Pnimiut of that is Chassidut. But I'll touch on that at a moment. Of course, for the Maskilim, who actually produced Etz Chaim, did the first printing of Etz Chaim in Satanov in around 1790, for them, it was more about the Atzilut of Chochmah than the Chochmah of Atzilut. It was about the emanation of wisdom rather than wisdom of emanation. That's a private Kabbalistic joke. You can either laugh at that or not. Okay. So the Chochmah Torah comes down at each level and is ultimately Chochmah doesn't just come down. It's drawn down into this world, into Olam HaAsiyah. Remember the lowest of the four worlds. This world of facts. This world of Olam HaAsiyah. This world of facts. This world of actions. To become the or, To become the light of Malchut. To become the light of this world. What is it about light? Light you don't see. You see by it. It is the medium of a revelation. By which... Divine reality can be perceived it, as it comes into this world. That's interesting because if you remember last week when I was discussing the Gaon of Vilna, the Gaon of Vilna ends and that whole amazing perush he's got on Sifritz Niuta, where he describes the fact that he wants you basically to become, well, what's coming through the Kav is Torah, and he wants you to become like the Kav and to raise Malchut up to Chochmah. In a sense, there is a reverse direction happening for the Alter Rebbe, where he wants Chochmah to come down into this world. He wants, it's about Chochmah. Oh, okay, okay. I can see that people are looking at me with complete. Look, Chochmah and Binah. And then we have several Sfirot. Chesed. I'm just, I've done the Sfirot before on every other occasion, so I'll just do them now because I need to show you something. Tiferet, Netzach, Hod, Yesod, and Malchut. Now, there's groupings of four. It's a very big grouping. Chochmah is, putting aside Keter, Chochmah is one. Bina is two. These six are considered as one, which we know as Zer and Pin, which is Zah and Malchut is a separate level. Basically, obviously, these parallel the four letters of the name of God, etc., etc., and the four worlds and all the other correspondences that you have in Kabbalistic literature. There are really two types of spiritual perception. There is the relationship between Chochmah and Malchut. And there's a relationship between Binah and the Midot known as Zah. I'm going to draw something for you that will illustrate that. 
be wary of pictures. Be very wary of pictures. Especially pictures by me, because I'm very, very bad at it. Bina is an encompassing totality, creates the midot. So this is one relationship. Chokhmah, which is in a sense inside Bina, has a relationship with Malchut. These two types of relationship implicate not only Soviv and Memaleh, but the dualism of Tfilah and Limud Torah. Limud Torah, which is the full intellectual investment, is in fact the relationship of Chokhmah, the higher Chokhmah, coming into Malchut. That is why for Limud, what's the, what's the fundamental difference between Tfilah and Talmud? What's the real difference physically? One, you're standing. One, you're sitting. The concept of Limud Torah is done by Yeshiva. And the concept of Tfilah is done by Amida. Oh, I knew that someone would disagree and I knew that person would be. Sorry? He said you stand when you learn Torah. There are those who... I'm going to continue with this metaphor because I, I, you're right, but you know what, um, you know what I mean. There is a full intellectual investment. This, of course, is the ultimate point at which we are trying to... Although, although Shneer Zalman is, of course, within the Hasidic framework, and one of the things that the Baal Shem Tov did was to, in a sense, prioritize tefillah over limud. Why? Because tefillah, prayer, was something that could be performed by anyone and had a direct access. But for Rav Shneer Zalman, the, who is regarded as the rationalist, if you like, the intellectual of the, of, of the entire Hasidic movement, the, hence Chabad and so on. It is precisely the vessels of the intellect that are designed in order to bring down God, draw down into this world, because God is drawn into this world primarily through Chokhmah and Binah and then Da'at and Da'at Contains and this is not this is not Shnezalman. This is already going back to Etzchayim. Da'at, which is the synthesis of Chokhmah and Bina, Da'at contains its own set of midot, its own set of faculties by which it is expressed. It gives birth to faculties which are what are the midot of Sechel? The midot of Sechel. Please stay with me. I know that I've lost three quarters of you, but please stay with me. The midot of Da'at are Ahava. And Yira. Ahava and Yira, love and awe, A-W-E, are the midot that are engendered by the intellectual process of what? Of contemplating the greatness of God. Contemplating the greatness of God is a concept in Chabad thought called Hitbonanut. In Hitbonanut, when a person contemplates on how infinitely great God is, it gives rise inside the intellect, inside the mind, to the qualities of love and fear. Those qualities then control the midot of a person so that they behave in a world in a way which exemplifies the revelation of the wisdom of God in the world, chokhmah and the awe of God in the world, by working towards bitul hayesh. Bitul hayesh is the annulment of self. 
This works not only on a microcosmic level for an individual person, but also with humanity, which means that the coming of supernal wisdom into the world affects the tikkun required by humanity in order to become a vessel. For Schneer Zalman, the world doesn't really exist. Tzimtzum never really happened. The whole thing is just the perspective that we have down here. It looks like, guys, we have a world. Ultimately, in terms of the absolute essential divine reality, it never happened. The whole point of the creation of this perception here on earth, this Alma de Peruda that we seem to be living in, is because God wants, in the ultimate sense, dira betachtonim. Those who are familiar with Hebrew and hear that for the first time find that very strange. It means a dwelling place in the lower worlds. So that God can be completely revealed at all levels. So created creatures like ourselves can have a gradual and perceptive relationship of the divine. Light is that by which you things become clear. The light is chokhmah ila'ah at this stage, but what is ultimately to be drawn down into the world is the light that is even beyond chokhmah. The atzmut ein sof, the essence of ein sof itself, will come into the world. But at this stage, the tzimtzum allows us to perceive that there is a world. So, this relationship really represents the concept of religion. This represents the concept of our day-to-day existence as Jews in the world. This represents our rituality. This represents our relationship to God based on the investment of Torah. But ultimately, we are trying to draw down Malchut into uh, Chokhmah into Malchut in order to bring or from above Chokhmah or from Ein Sof into the world itself. So that we can perceive God everywhere and in everything. Remember there's a very fine line between saying God is everything and God is in everything. Which is the big red text to mark line of Apicursus between Spinoza and the others. I was referring to a discussion, you know, a, a remark made within scholarly literature between the difference between pantheism and panentheism. There's a danger in saying that God is everything because then I can just you know, go up to this pillar and treat it as God. Uh, obviously, everything in reality is God because there's ein od milvado. There is nothing else besides God. But in terms of our perception, as we unravel the layers, as you know, strip away the layers, as Matasiao says. To quote another great Chabad thinker. Disagreed with with Shepard, with uh, What is his major difficulty with what we just, we just there is none on a Kabbalistic level. This is the great, this is the amazing thing. The Schneezalman and the Gra would have had basically absolutely no really no nafkamina on the outcome of what you're trying to achieve. 
there might be different slight emphases here. The real problem, as I've spoken in other times, the real problem of the Gaon of Vilna with the Hasidim was much more to do with ritualization, with separation, with new shechita, with new nusach tefillah, with reports of sabbatean orgy, you know, all the rest of that goes on with that. It wasn't to do with essential Kabbalistic ideas, although, if we, as I've shown, if we get down to the, the brass tacks about it, there is, does seem to be, when you look at it, a different type of conceptual movement between us elevating ourselves in the world towards God or drawing down divine light and drawing down God into the world, into the world of facts, into olama asiyah. It's dira batachtonim. It's precisely here where God needs to be revealed. It's precisely here where we need to see that no tzimtzum act actually took place, that God is everywhere and God is behind it, actually here. And it is by engaging in facts and engaging in reality, but according to Torah and according to the holiness that is brought about by Torah and the light that it sheds on reality, and by, especially by preparing ourselves and the world to be that vessel that can contain the light. That, of course, leads on to other subjects, of course. The key to that is the concept of Ahavat Yisrael, the concept of every Jew feeling responsible for and loving every other Jew, and then ultimately also having some form of responsibility for the whole of humanity. I want to just talk, I mean, I, I want to talk a little bit just to move on to tie this up, because the, th- the thought processes are very similar and very subtle, but if you really want to bring it down, I just want to talk about Rabbi Nachman for a bit on the subject of the halal. As you can see, as you know, all of these Hasidic giants talk about a great variety of Kabbalistic concepts. I've just picked one Kabbalistic concept as a theme throughout these talks to show you how Kabbalistic ideas evolve. I don't know that I've done justice to the Alter Rebbe. There's, there's still in my mind, somewhere floating around going, David, there's a major point that, 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 that brings that together. But that's okay. If someone wants to trigger that in a moment, they can. But maybe it'll be triggered by this. Rabbi Nachman, Rabbi Nachman was a very, <laughs> very complex figure. Once again, not, I, I haven't got time to go into it biographically or historically. He's the great-grandson of the Baal Shem Tov, and he seemed to attract the concept of machloket wherever he went. Braslav, of course, went into a state of katnut, meaning to use Kabbalah. Well, that's a great thing. The more Kabbalistic concepts you learn, the more you realize that the language and concepts of Kabbalah can be used to describe anything you want to in the world, whether it's, it's, a, it's, it's a terminology, it's a consciousness paradigm so that you can describe matters in science or in history using Kabbalistic concepts. But Braslav went into what we would call a katnut, meaning into a, a more diminutive and diminished form for many years. It has, however, in the last 20 to 30 years, blossomed again to become one of the fastest growing and dynamic movements in the Jewish world today. You should also be aware, and I know that since most of us live in Yerushalayim, you are definitely aware that Abraslav is not some monolithic movement, that in fact it contains a great variety of sub-movements. The Nanachs who are jumping around in the middle of the traffic are only one specific trend within the world of Rabbi Nachman. Rabbi Nachman famously obviously chose to die and be buried in Uman and his burial site has been a focus of pilgrimage for a long time. We're coming up now to Rosh Hashanah. It's a very, very big 
thing for Braslava Hasidim to go. Who has been to Uman, by the way? Okay. How was that? Yeah, yeah, I'm told it's very interesting. Interesting, because we've been learning that the world, that Simtsum is affected by Dinim. And then the Magid tells us that the world, that Simtsum is really comes about through an act of chesed on the part of God, through an act of ahava, and that is why ahava is deep in the fabric of creation. But in fact, Rabbi Nachman tells us, and I'm obviously Rabbi Nachman's literature is huge, I'm focusing mostly on Likutei Moharan, and within Likutei Moharan, those who want to read up, I'm, I'm talking mostly about Drushim Samach Dalad and Ayn Chet, uh, those Likutim in Likutei Moharan, that Tzimtzum is really, comes about through Rahmanut, through mercy. What is the difference between Rahamim and Chesed? Chesed is an unqualified outpouring of benevolence. Rahmanut is benevolence, but with an awareness that this benevolence is not without its structured limitations. Meaning, generally, to... the. the the, the classic idea would be that, that if you grant someone leniency or you pardon them or you apply rachamim, let's say in a judgmental or court situation, then you are aware of this person's guilt, but you are giving them chesed inside that vessel of guilt. In other words, it is chesed inside din is how rachamim comes down to the world. The world is based on rachmanut. Sorry? Clemency is a nice idea. Yes, that's a nice way of translating it. As opposed to simply unbridled chesed. That, takes us, that idea takes us back to, to uh, the Baal Shem Tov and the idea that the wicked have also got a part to play in the causing the creation of the world. <laughs> but the Reb Nachman says, you know this whole business of the halal? This business of the halal and the tzimtzum. I'm not going in now to the whole Hasidic thought of Rabbi Nachman. I'm not talking about the concept of hit bodedut. I'm not going to talk about Rabbi Nachman's other concepts. I want to talk about Rabbi, Rabbi Nachman as a Kabbalist, the way I want to talk about the Alter Rebbe as a Kabbalist. Remember that all of the Chabad Rebbeim, all of them, all of them, were not just huge thinkers within Hasidut. They were all massive Kabbalists. And all of their writings show a phenomenal acquaintance, deep familiarity with all the major texts of Kabbalistic literature. And similarly in Rabbi Nachman. Once you learn a few basic Kabbalistic texts, you will start to recognize in Rabbi Nachman that his entire Hasidut is based on a deep familiarity with the Ari. Although Rabbi Nachman is famous, especially in Nikutem Moharan, for not really quoting any Jewish texts between basically the Midrash and himself, which would fit with the Masoret that he was basically possibly at the level of a Tana. But he does quote the Ari in different times in Lurianic concepts. The Halal, says Rabbi Nachman, cannot be understood. Oh, certainly not by us now. In the future... It may be possible to understand Tzimtzum and to understand the Halal. Right now, we don't. 
All we know about the halal, and once again, I'm hoping that this will show how an abstract cosmological idea that starts with the Ari starts to unfold and become more and more existential for us. The halal can't be understood, but we do know that it allows for creation to exist. That means that the essence of the grounding of all being, of all creation, is nothingness. Sounds very Sartrean, but it's nothing. What emerges from the halal in order to allow the world to exist is the concept of machloket. Division. Anything that emerges from the halal must emerge as a binary. The concept of shnei hafachim, two opposites. It must emerge as a binary. It cannot emerge as a unity. From here is zero. What is beyond the halal cannot penetrate through the halal as a unity. It must come out as shnei hafachim. It is machloket. It is binary construction. But it's also machloket in its simple concept as understood within Jewish literature. The idea of rabbis arguing and having different opinions over Torah actually creates the world in which we live, allows the world to exist. All tzimtzum is a levush. It is a covering. It is a garment. It is composed, of course, of otiyot as we know from Yisrael Sarug, is composed of otiyot. Otiyot, a language. Beyond language, we have no way of expressing because language is the clea of reality. Beyond language, there is nothing. So for us, the halal is the absolute grounding. There are, says Rabbi Nachman, in the world... See, I know what I'm about to say, and it's going to sound... There are, says Rabbi Nachman two types of apikursus. Everybody know what I mean by apikursus? Good. <laughs> apikursus meaning heresy. One type of apikursus emerges into the world from the shvirata kelim. The process of the breaking of the vessels. When everything becomes a tumult. Everything gets mixed up. Most apikursus that you hear about which comes from various chokhmas in the world, whether they're the Enlightenment. And remember, Rabbi Nachman is the guy who's telling us, boys and girls, an Enlightenment has happened in the Goyesha Welt, and it's going to have an impact on us, and maybe not now, but maybe in 100 years, 150 years, 200 years, there's going to be a big cri de foi. Crisis of faith. And now... You need to understand that all of the Apicurses that come from all the Chachmas in the world have answers. They have answers. It's okay. You know why? Because that Apicurses comes from the Shvirata Kelim. But there is another type of Apicurses. That is the Apicurses created by people who do not understand Torah properly. Who sit down with a piece of Gomorrah and make a svara, which they think is particularly brilliant, but is utterly wrong. And goes on to create division, and goes on to create minut, and goes on to create improper interpretations of Torah that ultimately cause the breakdown in Am Yisrael. Those, that type of apikursus, 
has no answer. It's a very clever play on words because it says, Ein tshuva, which is the famous like this, you know, no tshuva, no tshuva. Why? Because it doesn't come from Shavata Kelim, it comes from the halal. The only way that Am Yisrael gets through history in the face of those type of, that type of apikurusas and that type of intellectual breakdown, which is of course referred to as Amalek, and Amalek comes also from the halal for Rabbi Nachman, therefore anti-Semitism, which is also meta-rational and incomprehensible, also comes from the halal. The only way that Am Yisrael crosses and traverses those Chochmot and that history is through Emunah. And Emunah, he doesn't tell you this, but he comes as close as saying it, so I'm just on this one point I'm interpreting. Everything else is pure Rabbi Nachman, but I'm interpreting that Emunah is the Kav. Because Emunah is that which connects us with something that is beyond the intellect, beyond language beyond Chochmah to ultimately connect with Ein Sof itself. For Rabbi Nachman, Tzimtzum can also be used to calm a person down. Sometimes a person can have such an intense level of Hitlahavut, of, what's a good, enthusiasm. Very good. Can you see the power and beauty of Hebrew? How the word, you know, you can see inside the word hit lahavut, the word lahav meaning a flame. And so hit lahavut, to become inflamed. Enthusiasm is a great translation, but it doesn't really hit the mark. Passion. But although passion is more on the level of chuka, it's more on the level of desire, whereas hit lahavut, on fire. A person can be passionately on fire and even deeply enthusiastic. And they have no way, it is so powerful, I don't know if anybody's ever feel, felt this, it, sorry? It's, it, has, it cannot be contained. It cannot be contained. It has no vessel with which to be contained. The Torah is the tzimtzum of every person that is capable of containing that energy and giving person the structures and the dinim by which to create the kelim, by which to be in the world, because otherwise you would just annihilate the world. I mean, as far as everybody else is concerned, you're in a padded cell. But as far as you're concerned, you've basically annihilated the world through this inability... Because if you realize, really, that Simtsum never took place, this is the really big revolution of the whole, the Baal Shem Tov, if you realize that Simtsum never took place, then ain, although we've discussed in the last few weeks this myriad of levels and olamot and paltsufim and these different stages of emanation, but ultimately Ein Sof is here. The infinite essence of God is here and can be revealed here in this world. Through and by you and by us and by every single human being has the potential. That's what a human being is, someone who has the potential to reveal God in the world. Obviously, I have focused on Kabbalistic concepts within just two or three major Hasidic thinkers. As you are aware, and I, I've only touched on it, there are many, many concepts I haven't discussed.
this five-fold division, four plus keter, also obviously parallels the five levels that are distinguished within Kabbalistic literature of the soul. Basically, everyone has a nefesh. This is symbolized by the level of soul called ruach. Uh, ruach is uh, <laughs> a spiritual level of the soul that is revealed to everybody at various times, but obviously we strive to have that revealed most of the time. You know how sometimes you can be at a really special event where it's very mystical, it's very spiritual. You might be at a chatuna, or you might be somewhere, and you say, wow, what a ruach, and things. So imagine like being like that all the time would mean that you were infused with ruach. Obviously, neshama is a level that is only very, very rarely revealed to unique individuals. Everybody has a little bit of this, but to be fully revealed, and certainly fully revealed at the time, is only afforded to the greatest sages. Chaya is this level. Yechida never comes down into the world. That's Keter. One second. What am I doing? Neshama is Bina. Chaya is Chochmah. Sorry, I just mixed up the diagram. So there are these levels, and I'm, I'm telling you this so that people don't look at Kabbalistic literature and go, oh, he didn't talk about that, that's such a basic concept, how come he never said that? So I just wanted to say that over the last few weeks I didn't talk about really the soul. The soul is a whole other thing. We can, I've given talks in the past on the concept of Gilgul and the concept of Shammai and exactly what happens with it, so we might do that again sometime in the future. Bear in mind that the key to understanding the Kabbalistic notion of transmission and also what Kabbalistic, pure Kabbalist literature and Hasidic literature and all its offshoots are really trying to inculcate is the idea that there is a divine reality. We access this divine reality through the relationship that the Jewish people have with God and that we are given a purpose and meaning in the world. The Adam de la'ela and the imminence of God in the world, which is represented by Kabbalistically by Zer and Pin, and the Hitler shoot events off inside the Erampin through Ak and then Atzilut and so on really metaphorizes the actual person. And so we rise to meet Zah. Zah comes down to meet us. The relationship between Zah and Nukva, I'm using Kabbalistic terms at the moment, of course, is the essence of our relationship with the world and with history and so on. So I have only done Rashay Trakim. I have really, really only absolutely touched the absolute outside of Kabbalistic knowledge, just to give an idea about how these things are drawn down. Remember that in the Idurabah, at the beginning, it says, <laughs> that those who really reap the field of Kabbalah are few. Many, many, many people hear Kabbalistic concepts and they go, mm, and they walk away. It means that you are not ready for them or they're not ready for you. When you want to open yourself up to understand what the great revelations of Kabbalistic thoughts and ideas are to Am Yisrael, then the right teacher appears. But once again, I emphasize, don't follow anyone who says, my derech is the derech, and ultimately go back to source texts. That's why this is the wrong way of teaching it. Go back to source texts and look for yourself and try and make sure that everything you learn is sourced and contextualized. I certainly thank you for listening to this series of talks. This is going to be painful for me this evening. I'm going to wake up and remember what I didn't, that point that 
brings it all together and you would walk away going, wow, he made so much sense of it. But instead you're going to go away going, once again, a big challenge of ideas. But I'm hoping that you can see that through Hasidic thought, they're bringing down Kabbalistic ideas to become more and more a part of the world. How a person feels responsible for fixing the world. How a person feels responsible for basically being God's representative in the world. That is the key to what the Kabbalah is trying to do in the symmetry between the upper worlds and the lower worlds, as the Zohar says. I know that many of you only come out of amusement to see if I'm going to run out of topics. Some of you have suggested topics. We're going to look more and more into that. Thank you guys for uh, listening. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the talk. For episode notes and transcripts, or to learn more about David's next classes and projects, visit davidsolomon.online. You can also find David on Instagram or Facebook. Thank you. We hope to see you again soon. Thank you.